Welcome, friends and colleagues. Today's podcast is entitled Beats and Ends on the Beginning. I find that the subjects we are talking about are complex and that the main uh, point needs to be kept in mind throughout the podcast, which obviously limits my ability to go on tangents. Yet, there are so many interesting tangents. Therefore, what I decided to do is every once in a while to have one session on these tangents. So, tangent number one, I will always identify the tangents. We spoke in the introduction about the uniqueness of biblical writing, the multivocality, the contradictedness, the presentation of several views at the same time, either chronologically at the same time or diachronically, and um, that the author, with a capital A, aims to bring us into the picture and become an active participant in understanding it by presenting us with somewhat contradictory or at least differently leaning pieces of information. Now, why would we write that way? The authors of the documentary Hypothesis, Wellhausen and the rest, assumed that the correct way of writing is a straight uh, chronological uh, type of writing, like the 19th century novel, the writings of Balzac, Tolstoy, Dickens, with which they were familiar. But that's exactly not what biblical writing is like. Biblical writing is obscure. It leaves spaces which we, the readers, must reconstruct. More importantly, it seems to present opposing or different views at the same time. <clears throat> Set to thinking about this, I recalled an interesting little book by Rabbi Aryeh Kaplan entitled, If You Were God. He asks the question, if I was God, how would I manage humanity? We have here millions and billions of people with different ideas, different directions in life, different values, different things they consider important. And we want to direct their development without stifling or forcing them. We want ultimately every individual to make the right choice, but to do so free will. So how would you do it if you tried once with Adam and twice with the uh, generation of dispersion and flood and three times with the builders of the tower? How would you do it? Rabbi Ari Kaplan contends that you would create and infiltrate a class of teachers and what we now would call influencers. Uh, you would select a nation that would have internal cohesiveness because of its familial uh, and historical interconnections. <coughs> and you will plant them among the rest of humanity to subtly influence, persuade, and lead 
towards the recognition of God and the recognition of his law. And that is exactly what it states in Exodus 19.6. And you shall be a state of priests and a holy nation. See the comments of Siporna in his commentary to that verse. You will see that that is exactly what he uh, puts forth. This is what we would call a Hirschian view. Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch promoted such a view uh, in his commentary and in his many writings and in his life that the Jewish nation serves as the teaching and influencing nation for humanity. The question remains whether this is true now or only to be so the times of the Messiah and that is uh, the grist for many current debates and policy and approach. Nevertheless, it led me to the question of if you were God, how would you write the Bible? Now, as an aside, I just want to mention that there is another attempt to ask a question of how would you lead humanity to a goal if you had great powers? And that is coming from a completely different part of the world and a completely different orientation. Uh, the book by the Strugatsky brothers, a Russian science fiction work of 1964, that was made into a movie in 2013 called It's Hard to Be a God. Uh, the book and the movie deals with the dilemma of embedded observers that are sent inside a regressive, violent and cruel medieval society. Of course, the caricature, it wasn't like that at all, but that is how the communists saw it. And being constrained by Marxist beliefs in the inevitability of historic development, but <clears throat> the need of historic development nevertheless, the role of this observance is to gently nudge the society towards enlightenment, rationality, and of course, economic advancement all the way to communism. It deals with a... Uh, one, of such, one such observer who finds his surroundings very difficult and at the end moves too fast and too aggressively to change the world in which he finds himself. So back to this question. If you were God, how would you write the Bible? Would you write it chronologically? It would seem that that would be quite unnatural for a being that says, is the past and the future, and the front and the back, and everything, how it's related, antecedent and consequence. <coughs> um, a word of apology for the non-believers. I did say in the introduction that the approach of what it tells, not what it says, is fruitful even for non-believers, and that we all have to come together on some ground, and that ground could be trying to understand what the Bible means to teach without getting 
into the debate of what it actually says. With uh, apology to those listeners, I will now speak assuming and accepting the concept that God was the writer of the Bible. So, if you were God, how would you write? Well, we know that human beings are limited. We are limited in what we perceive, how much we can keep in our mind at the same time, and the kind of conclusions we are conditioned to reach because of our backgrounds. I know three models of this limitation, and let's go through them briefly now. Model number one, three blind men and the elephant. As we all know, three blind men try to understand what the elephant is. One felt the tail, one felt the trunk, one felt the massive side, and each one said, no, the elephant is that which I saw. This points out our limitations in space. When you look at the front of an object, you cannot see its back. And when you look at its back, you cannot see its front. A being that can see the back and the front at the same time will obviously talk and write and conceptualize things in a different way than humans would. Another way to look at it is the simile of fishing in the sea using nets with different size holes. A net with a very large hole will bring up one kind of fish, a net with many little holes will bring up a different kind of fish. That uh, emphasizes the limitation of method. The way we think about something it depends on what method we use. We're scientific or mystical, literary or factual, will really determine what we see. Third model, model of refracted light, model of partial perception. This is found in a number of classical Jewish writings in the Pardes of Rabbi Yaakov Cordovero and Ramoshe Cordovero and in uh, the Tanya, Shara Ichud Vayamuna and others. And what it points out to is that you can have a sunlight passing through a windowsill on which are set up flasks with different colored liquids. Based on the color of the liquid in the flask, you will get a different kind of light. A vessel filled with red will appear to transform the white light of the sun into a red light. And a vessel filled with yellow will do the same into yellow and so forth. The concept here, which is being taught by this simile, and explicitly so, is that what we perceive of God is depends on what we are. That there is a lot, a lot, a lot, perhaps infinitely more in the source of light, but our reception splits it into domains and colors to which we are conditioned. The bottom line is we are limited beings, but what would happen if an unlimited being wrote 
work? Well, it might come out something like the Bible we have. It will struggle with the limitations of human language. We'll speak about that at some other time, but certainly matter philosophers uh, understand that language is very limited. What would it be for an unlimited being to write in a limited language? Well, possibly it might write exactly in the way we find in the Bible. Concurrent narratives, confusion of past and future because of the element of causation, obscure connections, and certainly, certainly not a chronological work, which in fact, uh, at least the five books of Moses clearly are not. So we would end up with this multifocal, multi-perspective, complex, confusing, um, elevating and drawing in narrative, both in the uh, narrative sections and in the legal sections. And that's what, in fact, we have. Tangent number two. I want to speak briefly about a point that we made about the creation using a double construction of the, the heaven, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> the heaven and the earth. We suggested that the emphasis on the heaven and earth is to indicate that God is above both the heaven and the earth as its creator. He is both temporally, whatever that means in the context of creation, and spatially and causally uh, elevated out of the world in which we live. We spoke about the danger of such a view and how it leads to deism and weakens uh, religious faith. And we spoke about how the verse very quickly presents to us an alternative view of God being within the world. I made a statement about uh, Isaiah's theology in that context, and I want to narrow down, uh, drill a bit into it. So, <coughs> we saw that in Isaiah 66, 1, he presents a uh, view of God being in heaven, but also present in this world. So, I'm going to use the uh, JPS uh, 2017 translation, which is itself is revised uh, from previous translations and King James. So, here it comes, 66.1. Thus says the Lord, Hashemayim kisi vahaoretz hadom raglai. Heaven, the heaven, is my throne and the earth is my footstool. 
He goes on to say, where could you build a house for me? What place could serve as my abode? We will focus on the second part in a minute. But first of all, clearly, God sits in heaven. That is his throne. That is where, forgive me, his bottom is. His body and his head are both heaven. And presumably the heavens of heavens. And his feet are on the earth. Another verse where this kind of theology comes through is in chapter 40, verse uh, 22. I'll read in Hebrew and then translate. Hayoshev al chuk haoret veshveyakachagavim hanoteka dok shemaim vemtachem kaor lashevet. English. He who sits on the vault of the earth. Notice an interesting uh, formulation as the vault of the earth, not the vault of heaven, as we would usually expect to find, as we find in the first chapter of Genesis, in fact. And then he says that he spreads out the skies like gauze, like a tent to dwell in. So, he sits on the vault of heaven. He spreads heaven as a ghost on which to sit, which means his feet, again, are on the earth. And, in fact, this vault is called not the vault of heaven, but the vault of the earth. Here, another expression in Isaiah of seeing God as spanning from earth to above heaven. In chapter 6, second, uh, sorry, first verse, Bishnas Mos Hamelech Uziyahu, Veire as Adonai Yoshev Al Kisei Ram Venisa, Vishulav Muleim as Hechal. In the year that King Uzziah died, I beheld my Lord seated in the high lofty throne, and the skirts of his robe filled the temple. I would just mention that there is a sense in which the temple is a representation of uh, earth and heaven, and the place where, in fact, in fact, the only place in the world where heaven and earth come down. So God dwells in the temple as he dwells in heaven. This is found in many uh, classical commentators. They for this introduction to the God perplexed, for the perplexed, let's say, of Maimonides, Shari Or, of Rav Katila, and a number of commentators. The structure of the temple parallels the structure of heaven and earth. That would be another tangent, so we won't go there. But here, too, if the temple is heaven, God sits on his high and lofty throne, and his, they translate it in JPS, skirts of his robe, but means his lower part fills the temple, just like he sits in heaven and his feet 
rest and the earth. I would point out another interesting tangent that would require another discussion, which is in 66.1, Isaiah seems to be referencing the verse in 6.1, and he's saying that that perception that temple is heaven is also not correct in a certain way, because at uh, that point uh, Isaiah is uh, troubled and disgusted by the reliance of the Jewish people on temple service instead of the inwardness of the heart, and their reliance on the temple as the sign of a covenant, which means nothing bad can ever happen to them, denying the possibility of exile, and uh, basking in the glow of divine presence while committing various sins. So, he says in 61.1 The heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where could you build a house for me? What place could service my abode? He's questioning this connection or at least the connection in popular psychology that the temple as heaven and earth, where God dwells, protects the people from any consequences of their sins. All right. Tangent number three. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth, but really, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. We spoke about that already. I suggested that the and the double, the et, ha, uh, means to point out God's uh, creation of specifically the heaven and the earth, and his therefore separateness from this world, his superiority, his being above and not limited and constrained by it like pagan deities would be. I saw in two recent commentators a strange statement. I'll read it first from the Eitz Chaim Torah commentary by Nahum Sarna, a great scholar, and then by Tasuto, another recent great commentator. He wrote in Italian, and uh, I'm quoting from a two-volume, From Adam to Noah. There is as well a specific commentary on the five books of Moses. So, <coughs> Sarna says, <coughs> Heaven and earth, the observable universe is here specified by the use of the definite article in Hebrew, the heaven and the earth. Okay, we spoke about that. The combination of opposites, heaven and earth, expresses the totality of cosmic phenomena for which there is no single word in Biblical Hebrew. Kasuta says something else. 
He's a little bit different in tone, but he says the concept <coughs> of the unity of the world was unknown among the Israelites till a late period. So on, so on. What we designate the universe, they regarded as two separate entities, the heavens, at the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the sons of men. Psalm Uh, 65, 16, I think it's, okay. Okay, we spoke about that. Um, by earth is to be understood here everything under the heavens. So we already spoken about the fact that, yes, there was a uh, word for everything in Hebrew, and it's kol, and um, we already pointed out that Isaiah, in the context of creation, specifically uses this term, call everything. And that's in Isaiah 43, 7, read in Hebrew, Yatsativ Afasisiv. All who are linked to my name, whom I've created, formed and made for my glory. So he is created, formed and made, and it's all. So there is such a word. Therefore, the use of the the heaven and the earth must have a different meaning, and I would argue it's the meaning I suggested. Now, not only would it appear to be meaning I suggested, but we find that uh, the construction et ha is generally used to indicate the immediacy of action. As I spoke about it, uh, it's kind of like an accusative in Indo-European languages, which strongly connects the doer, the verb, and the object. We'll speak about the weakness of verbs in Hebrew some another time, but if you were to understand the first verse in the passive, and we discussed that there are two approaches. One is to translate, in the beginning God created, and then deal with grammatical difficulty of the sentence in Hebrew. Or, in the beginning of creating, God made heaven and earth. Well, if it's in the beginning of creation, of creating, uh, it's a more of a passive um, a sentence, and what we find is that the et ha can be used in passive sentences, but with a meaning. So uh, people like Nahum Sarn and his commentary, it's Chaim, based on Rashi, who adopt this more indirect uh, passive uh, approach, uh, are, are truly uh, compelled to find an explanation for the heaven, the earth, and so he does in the way we just discussed. Now, what do I mean that et ha, uh, the definite term, can be used even in a passive sentence? Uh, let's take a look in Genesis 17:24.
the context there is the circumcision. You have two verses right next to each other, <coughs> talking about Abraham's circumcision and Ishmael's circumcision. In verse 24, 1724, it says, Abraham was 99 years in circumcising the flesh of his uh, closed organ. Four skins had the chest and JPS. So here, we do not have the word or the usage of et ha, but in the very next verse, talking about Ismail, so we do have the usage of it. So why this change in, in the grammatical structure and in the usage of uh, the uh, Aleph Tov Et word? Rashi provides an explanation. He says that consistent with the proposition that Et denotes directness and connectedness, of the verb to the object, <coughs> that he suggests that Abraham was old and his foreskin was largely worn away over the years. And uh, he needed someone else to do it. Well, if it's someone else, it's passive, it's not as related, you don't use the word et ha. However, Ishmael was 13 years old in Jewish tradition at that time which is why Muslims continue to uh, apply circumcision at age 13. And he had something to cut and he was, uh, it was needed an assistant and uh, it was a more direct action. That's how Rashi explains it. All right, I think this is enough for today. I appreciate you listening. Friends and colleagues, we will meet again next time when we'll talk about the term Elohim and is there plurality in God. Thank you much and may you be healthy and strong. <laughs>